1: I want to say
2: it was human, but it wasn't. He was, he, was, he was yelling at me, grab a gun, grab a gun. I was like, for what? He said, just grab a gun. And there's footprints all the way to the door of my house. It had went inside my garage all the way to the door.
1: 911, what are you reporting? Jesus Christ, you better... See sure. up See ya! Hello? Get somebody out here. What's going on now, sir? That son of a bitch is about six foot nine, I don't know. Do you see him now, sir? Yes, I'm looking right at him.
2: Uh Uh-oh. You're listening to Sasquatch Chronicles. Check us out online at SasquatchChronicles.com. If you've had an encounter, email me. My email address is Wes at SasquatchChronicles.com. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thanks for being here tonight. Got a great show planned for you tonight. Going to be bringing Tom Seawood back to the show. And if you missed it, go back and listen to episode 274. That was my part one interview with Tom. And he gave us kind of a First Nations perspective on Sasquatch. And he's been sharing a lot of information uh, with me and with you guys as the audience. So I'm really excited to have uh, Tom back on the show. Tom is a native watchman. He grew up as a commercial fisherman. And I know that nowadays Tom uh, is residing in Kent, Washington. And he runs a website. Uh, it's www.hamumuadventures.com. H A M O O M O O Adventures.com. Hamumuadventures.com. And he'll take people out in uh, kayaks and yachts, and he'll take you out into the forest. And take you into areas where Sasquatch is. Talk about their uh, the First Nations traditions regarding Sasquatch. Great learning experience. So if you get a chance, check out hamumuadventures.com. And you can also check out Tom on uh, Facebook. It's under uh, Thomas Seawood, S-E-W-I-D, on Facebook. And Tom's just a great guy to come on and, and share some of the traditions and some of the native traditions and even his own personal encounters, I really appreciate him coming on tonight. If you've had an encounter and you'd like to be on the show, shoot me an email. My email address is wes at sasquatchchronicles.com. And if you get a chance, check out sasquatchchronicles.com. I keep up a daily blog there. If you want to become a member of the site, get additional shows. I know this time of year is tough for people. I get a lot of emails this time of year. Uh, with the holidays coming up. And it's supposed to be a happy time of year. We spend time with family. We spend time with friends. Uh, but there's a lot of people out there struggling this time of year that don't have that. And uh, I've gotten some very, um, very, very nice emails uh, from people who say, hey, you know what, I, I listen to your show as an escape, kind of get my mind off my problems, kind of get my mind off the world's problems. And it's just a great escape for me. So I thought I'd make this into a couple nights special for everyone. Uh, to sit back listen to tom uh talk about the native the 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 native perspective the first nations perspective on sasquatch so definitely get uh sit back get some coffee get some tea uh maybe grab yourself a beer and i hope you enjoy this show i want to welcome uh, tom to the show tom thanks for coming on again i really appreciate it
0: Gillespie,
2: greetings yeah greetings to you thank you for being here And one of the things I wanted to talk about tonight was the chatter, and most people heard the chatter there in the intro of the show, and that was from Ron Moorhead, uh, his recordings. If you get a chance, check out ronmoorhead.com, but it's interesting. People report this strange chatter. I've talked to many, many witnesses that report it. Uh, Some people will say it was a strange language. Some people will say it sounded Russian. Uh, Just They couldn't place it. My apologies to the Russians that listen. I hope I don't offend you by saying that. But when people hear it, they try and translate it in their mind. Like, what am I listening to? Have you heard that chatter before? And what is your take on it, Tom?
0: Yes, I've heard both four different types of vocalizations on a chattering level. And I always tell people, you ever see that show, Gods Must Be Crazy? Remember that show in the 80s? I don't think I remember that one. Well, you better find it. It's called The Gods Must Be Crazy. It's about this little South African bushman that uh, finds a Coca-Cola bottle that gets thrown out of an airplane anyway. It disrupts his whole tr- family group. So he has to, t- to go to the edge of the world to get rid of this Coke bottle, glass bottle. But this little African bushman, and I've seen it in other shows and documentaries, the way they talk. They talk with clicks, clacks, and their lips are chattering. Like that. That's exactly what I've heard, but a lot deeper voiced. You can tell it's coming from a bigger body. And then we got the the whistle chirps, like I imitated. We I hear those ones out there. Some A lot of people, like I remember one time we heard it out, and this was actually just recently in 2013 when we were building the, another camp, and we had quite a bit of activity. I remember the boys, I heard that chirp. I go, you guys hear that? When the guy goes, yeah, I heard that. I said, yeah, what kind of bird was that anyway? And oh, talk about a bunch of bullshit. Oh, it's this type of bird. Oh, it's that type of bird. I'm like, you concrete Indians, that wasn't the bird. (laughs) (laughs) And then you got the howls. And, you know, the howls are basically just a big spectrum from what, like I say, when we lived in Village Island, you know, we're a bunch of young 20 year olds, mid 20s, you know, living out in the bush. And, I remember one point, one year, we were just like, we'd force ourselves to go to sleep before dark. I remember lying in bed, like, eyes closed, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, because we didn't want to hear the howling that was not wolves. And that was towards the later part of August all through September into October. And October is when it really lights up.
2: I'd love to hear your third sighting. Would you mind telling that encounter?
0: It wasn't a sighting. It was an uh, ongoing Living on a 250-acre island with them sons of bitches on there and bugging the hell out of us. We were building. My tribe contracted me and uh, two band members, tribe members, and uh, non-native carpenter named Steph, who was tattooed up and smoked pot and cigarettes, and he was holier than thou because he had to teach us Indians how to carpentry. You know, we knew how to carpentry. Just in his the he was just uh, the chief was friends with him and wanted to pad his pocket with some cash. But anyway, we're out on this Indian Reserve Island, 250 rough acres big between two larger islands and behind us, uh, the Western Broughton Archipelago of islets and channels and just a thousand islands behind us. But we call it the freeway because we're between Swanson Island and Harbledown Island, which is the main freeway, swim and go overland and swim again because everything with fur and a heartbeat out there swims, even the bloody snakes. But anyway, they live in there and, you know, I'd been there quite a few years living off and on in the summertime. And, you know, when I'm out harvesting clams in the winter or hunting or crab fishing or whatever, I stay on Compton Island and I had cabin I had structures on there, cookhouse structures for the sea kayakers since the late eighties. So, you know, it's a good place to stay. And this is where my tribe wanted us to build, five cabins like my kayak resort, but bigger and, you know, more intricate. And it's beautiful. They look like It looks like a traditional native village. And I painted all the fronts with native orca designs and whale designs. But anyway, we're building the place. And when we first started, we we got uh, living in a tent. And that was in 2012. 2013, we went in with the um, tents again. And then finally this landing craft showed up and they unloaded with uh, hydraulic crane all of the prefabricated cabins, and right away we put one up because we wanted to get out of the tent. We wanted to start living in the walls around us, and that was mid-summer. And then by late summer, we had all five cabins up, and the carpenter was supposed to come in and finish up some work, but of course he was out doing whatever. So we're getting paid day rates, so I just told my Fellow workers, you know, two of them. I just said, "Hey, the tribe's paying us. I don't know about you guys, but I'm no rush to go back to concrete." And they're like, "Yeah, let's just stay here. We're working, I'm getting paid for it." So we stayed there. Leaves started falling, and now we're into October, and it's getting crispy, cool. And we had a wood stove that we put between two of the cabins, and a tarp over between the two eaves troughs, and put a temporary window wall up. So and the wind was blowing. We had a nice sheltered area with this wood stove and a picnic table between the two cabins, but an open back into the forest. And we we're staying there. And then all of a sudden, I come out and I was with Peggy, and uh, got a phone call from Camp because we got self range there. And he's and my worker goes, "You're not bullshitting me, Tommy, about the big fellas, are you?" I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't bullshit about that. Darcy, why? What's up? You go, something's up here. It's for damn sure. I said, what do you mean? He goes, me and John were just sitting there on the beach and they're, they, they like to do drumming and traditional Indian songs, native songs from the potlatch. They're really good singers. Those two, but I guess they're, they're with their wooden batons pounding on a big, huge uh, three by 12 by 20 foot long plank. We found on the beach, they're pounding on it. That's their drum. And they're singing, Quack, Quacky, walk, walk songs with deep baritone voices. That's just the thing they did. And I guess they were doing that and they stopped to have a smoke break, give their throats are And All of a sudden the twigs started coming out of the bush, splash landing in the water at high tide. He said right away, I thought, ah, okay, probably just the wind. Then and and I thought there's no wind, it's flat calm. And then a big one come out and you could actually hear it going, splash. He wasn't, I went to do what you told me to do. I went, and grabbed a shotgun, and walked up the trails. They talking Kwakwala. That's our language. You know, yo, Wixas, ma jose ye chunakha. You know, he's just saying things like that. You know, hey, who are you? I don't know who you are. Are you the chunakwa? He was just talking. And that's what we're told and taught. And he talked to the big fellas when he, they come around you. He said, I pushed like you told me just to go let him know I wasn't scared. And he goes, What else should I do? Should I let the 12 gauge go? I'm like, No, 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 no. Don't you pull that trigger unless you have to. And you only pull that trigger if that son of a gun's four or five feet in front of you and it's aggressive. I said, Don't you go try scare it. That's disrespecting it, it'll get pissed off. And so we left it at that. And I got back a few days later to camp. And his brother's gone. It's just Darcy there now. And they got this. So I said, Where's your brother? He goes, Oh, he wanted to quit. He got that scared? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, where did you stay last night? Because I know damn well you didn't stay on the island by yourself. He goes, oh, I stayed there. I was like, oh, don't bullshit me, Darcy. There's no way you'd stay on the island with a big fella. And he said, yeah, you caught me. He goes, I'd be going back to Alert Bay every night, staying with my dad. He
1: goes,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, it ain't going to happen now. You're staying here. So we stayed there. My wife just reminding me about something that happened that summer there that fall so we stayed there and nothing happened right away and then you know I'm walking around I'm checking the, my perimeters and one of the things I told Darcy I said hey come look at this look at this sons of bitch been probing our perimeters he was what do you mean I said look behind our we had a table and a tarp set up and that was our what we called our cook area propane stoves and we had you know because we're always there we didn't have to worry about bears so we had our ketchup and our peanut butter and everything out we used to try to keep it tidy because the mice would come out as soon as it got dark, there'd be mice all over getting into the crackers or whatever we didn't put in plastic totes or in one of the cabins. But you could see behind the, the cook area, animal trails, you know, mink, you know, there's no raccoons out there, but the mink holes and, you know, the odd place where a deer pushed itself through. We never had no bears. Like I said, we you know we had, we had a dog named quasi at that time on the Island. So we didn't have to worry about bear. And, uh, I could see something was probing, and when I looked at these probes, I was thinking, I told Darcy, I said, you know, the sons of bitches are crawling on their hands and knees probing us. He's like, you're kidding me. I'm like, I'm not kidding you. I said, look at this. <laughs> and then Darcy's a concrete city boy, and uh, he goes, oh, by the way, I guess I should tell you. I said, tell me what? He goes, we keep losing the garlic. And I'm like, what do you mean we keep losing the garlic? The garlic keeps disappearing and we had the garlic hanging all summer on a nail hanging off a big, huge, three-foot-thick spruce tree. The mice don't like garlic. We knew that already, because you leave a clove on there, the mice don't touch it. And he goes, yeah, the garlic's disappearing. I go in the cabin, I get another bulb, I use a couple pieces, put it back up on the string, and plenty things gone. So I said, well, start putting it in the cup then. So if we put it in the cup upside down, and, uh, sure enough, next day the bloody garlic's gone. And, you know, now I'm thinking, okay, you know, is this fricking Darcy farting around my head? And no, it's not him. Cause I tested him one night. I taped the door in the cabin he went to sleep and we were both in the same cabin cause he was so scared of the big fella. And I put tape across the bottom of the door. So I knew that if he got up while I was sleeping, not that it would happen cause I'd wake up, but he never went out. Next morning, went straight to the kitchen. Bloody garlic was gone. It was underneath the cup. So I'm like, Jesus, this is strange. So we just sort of laughed with it. And at about the same time, our garlic's going missing. Instead, repeatedly, all of a sudden, I go, to, hey, Darcy, come look at this. I said, the sons of bitches aren't creeping on their knees no more. They're just walking straight into camp. He goes, what do you mean? I said, look. And he could see behind our cookhouse and behind where our picnic table was between the two cabins and over, and over by our... Uh, what we call cabin four, five, where we're working. you could see these big pushes, something big had come through. And I'm like, son of a bitch is coming in, stealing our garlic. And he's, he's like, gee, look at that. They're not even crawling. eh?" I'm like, no, they're walking in there. I said, they're on this Island, Darcy. Let's go look for them. So we went walking, checking the Island. Of course, nothing. You're not going to find it anyway, daytime. So Steph comes in and, uh, we're telling him about this, this big non-native boy. You yeah, remember, you know, he's all tattooed up. He's a tough guy. He's all, oh, it's not happening. I'm like, yeah, it's happening. I said, this, just be on guard. I said, I'm not, you know, I said, when you go smoke your doobie, because I didn't let him smoke his pot in camp because Darcy wasn't allowed to touch it because I'm zero tolerance for it. So I said, when you go smoke your doobie up by the outhouse, I said, you might, want, might not want to go as far as the outhouse anymore. Well, Steph, he's, you know, kind of laughing it off like, oh, these guys have been on the island too long. And we're working one day and all of a sudden you hear this big crack, alder tree that's down by cabin five and generators going, the air nailer's going with the compressor running every now and then. Steph's working putting siding up and you hear this big crack and I'm working on the next cabin and I just grabbed a shotgun and I walked towards Steph and I Crouched down and i look, looking, you know, bush person. You're not looking at the bush wall. You look down. That's where the, especially in October, because the leaves are all falling from the salmon berries and the chum jum the stinging nettles disappearing now and Wilton and the alder trees are, small ones are losing their leaves. So I'm bending, I'm looking down. Sure enough, where that alder tree is broken in the bush, I saw just a hair-covered whatever. It could have been a black bear. It was blackish. And I, I looked at Steph. I said, "I oh, don't worry about it. And he, just, he goes, what the hell was that, Tommy? And I said, "I probably just a bear. It looked like a bear. I said, get, get back to work. Don't worry about it. I'm right here with a shotgun. Said, Besides that, you got a generator going. We are worried about it. I'm sort of stat- keeping a six. And I could see that he's kind of shooken up. Because he'd heard all the stories from Darcy about uh, what garlic going missing and all that. Now he's kind of like, these guys aren't. Maybe they aren't pulling my leg. And. So I'm standing there and I look towards the inner part of the island over where we have this blue tarp and underneath it is all our plywood and insulation and the generator and the compressor. And I look over top of this tarp, which is about maybe six feet off the ground, six and a half feet. I look up on the bank through the alder trees into the evergreen part of the forest, the hemlocks that are pretty, they're pretty high. They're like, you know probably 60 foot trees. So you can see in, under the canopy and up that hill a long ways. And by this stump up there, I'm looking and, you know, I've been looking before, so I know that stump is there, but it just doesn't look right. So I'm looking, I'm looking and I'm like, I don't want to take my eyes off it because I know mm. what I'm possibly dealing with. So I'm like, Darcy. And he comes over and he goes, what? I said, go get me the scope. I had a Bushnell 3x9, I think it is, rifle scope that I got sent by warranty a few years ago, and I never did put on the gun, but it's in the box, and that's what we use uses our, In Indian, we call them tukalux. So I said, go get me the tukalux. So he comes back, and he gives me the box, and I reach out with my hand, but I'm still looking at that stump. I'm not removing my eyes. And I'm like, take it out of that goddamn box, you fool. So he takes it out of the box and gives it to me right way, and I lift it up. And I'm looking at the stump and I put that scope on and I'm looking and that son of a bitch is sitting on its ass squatting with his legs spread. And it's got its back splayed against that big, huge cedar stump. And when I look at it, all of a sudden it just grimaces at me as it stands up, puts its hand on that stump and turns and just not fast, but it moved at a good clip and disappeared. While Steph is just like, Oh, shit. shit. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> and Darcy's like oh geez that thing's big and, and I'm like I oh, don't worry about it just walked away I said Steph get back to work well now he's just shit scared we all laughed because when Steph got to camp just like any other white guy he had way too much equipment for the bush he had this big box full of who knows what for carpentry plus other totes and bags and duffel bags <laughs> so anyway I'm Get back to work so we're back to work and i walk behind where that underneath that tarp and the, i'm going to look in the forest i want to check out see if this bugger's gonna do a loop-de-loop and come in on us again and i got the 12 gauge with me in that scope that took a look but when i get underneath the tarp and i walk to the back of it i stop and i'm looking on the ground for track or whatever at the same time and all of a sudden i'm like hey darcy come here come here so he comes over he goes what and i said I said look and you can see at the back of the tarp against this alder tree and then the wall of forest right behind the ground was like really depressed like flattened something had been standing there and not just once like a lot of times so I'm like go get, the, go get me a tape measure and get me one of those milk crates you have those plastic milk crates you see behind stores and restaurants so he come over and I'm like put it where that impression is, and I stand on it, and I just can see over top of the tarp. So I measure it with a tape measure. For standing in that position with your eyeballs looking over top of the tarp, you look right into the cabins one, two, three, the cookhouse area, you basically see 90% of the camp. And I measured it. And those eyes would have been up there at six foot six to six foot eight. Wow. So, whatever was standing there, I figured it was on that height. So, you know, we put that all away way in. I'm like, don't tell Steph. I <laughs> said he's going to get scared. All of a sudden, I went back to work. I was painting the interior, one of the cabins. I was painting a native humpback whale design against the back wall where the queen size, king size bed would be. Anyway, Darcy comes. He goes, come look, come look. So, I go, look. There's Steph. all this, he's packing all this stuff down to the beach. And it's almost high tide. So I walked over. I said, what's up, Steph? He goes, I'm done. I'm done here. And I looked at his work, and I'm like, well, you finished the siding. I said, well, what about the doors? You didn't finish the siding, the inside of the doors. You didn't finish this. You didn't finish that. And, oh, no, "No, I'm done. I'm done. I'm out of here. Get, take me out here on that boat. So I went to get the speedboat off the mooring boy. you had Darcy, are laughing. Crazy white man. And we get the speedboat. And... <laughs> I looked at Darcy and go, you helped him pack that big trunk down? He goes, no, that's what I was laughing about. It took two of us to pack it up the beach. Steph carried it down all by himself. Man, he's scared. <laughs> so we brought Steph out and me and Darcy got back to camp. We stayed there for another, I guess, maybe 10 days, two weeks. and But uh, we had all kinds of chatters. Like That's when he asked me about chatter noises. Um, I remember sitting at the picnic table. Steph was even still there. and we We're nighttime, three of us playing crib, and we had the wood stove going. Like I say, it's between two cabins going between the eaves troughs with a tarp above it, around the, the stack, and it, enough heat to keep you warm because it's late October now. And All of a sudden, you heard this roar behind the cabins in the bush. Well, I told the boys right away, well, I guess it's bedtime. Hey, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, me and Darcy went to our cabin, Steph went to his cabin, here heard a bang of doors, and that was it. Next morning, I got up and went look behind the cabin, didn't see any tracks, just see pushes through the growth. And I started cutting a lot of the trees back there, opening it up so I could see a long distance. Because, like, Darcy asked, What am I doing it for? I said, I said, that thing roared at us. I said, it's, it's been on this island for how long now? I said, it's probing us. And I said, if that son of a bitch comes after us, I said, I want to be able to have you with a handheld spotlight and me with my guns. I said, I got to be able to have a good line of sight. And I said, because think about it, Darcy, when you're in between those cute two cabins with that glass wall, there's only one way in and one way out. And if that thing's coming towards us, we got to go towards him to get out into the cabins. So that's when we opened it up back there. So. It's just, you know, yeah, was it needed? You know, well, as a bushman, you know, you do what you have to do. You know, you know, number one, it's your safety out there. And because they were on that island for so long, I was concerned for not our safety, but I was making sure, like um, like they did in Vietnam with Agent Orange and opening up all the forests and that, I was making sure I had clear line of sight if I had to squeeze trigger.
2: No, that, and so they were definitely watching you guys that whole time. I, You know, it's curious. I wanted to ask you about the garlic. I remember reading a lot of historical accounts of them taking garlic, and I remember thinking that's a real odd thing for them to take. Why would they take garlic? Do you have a theory on that? It's indigenous, to coastal British Columbia. I know of two
0: types of garlic we have out here. That's the only way I could figure.
2: Oh, I got you. Just a, as a food source, they eating it.
0: Yeah, I think it's just one of their foods. You know, I swear by it for so you don't get a flu.
2: Yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and and I gotta have you back because there's a lot of things that you know, there's a lot of behaviors, there's a lot and I mean we could talk for another two hours on the little people and dog man and all this other stuff. Uh would you mind telling the story about the logger that hit one?
0: I believe it was nineteen seventy six. I was prawn fishing in the eighties. Oh no, in the nineties i was on a been a commercial fisherman all my life. And uh, anyway, in the 90s, I was on a commercial prawn boat, you know, British Columbia's largest shrimp species. We used traps for them. But anyway, his wife, the captain's wife, uh, got to know the family pretty good. And we're all sitting there having a few beers and we got into port and the captain told his wife, hey, tell him about what happened in Port Alberni with that Sasquatch. She goes, well, we don't know. If it was a Sasquatch. And this woman's kind of she's pretty owly when you if she wants to be. I said, "Come on, what happened?" And she goes, "Well, I was probably about seventy-six. I was just a teenager. I was after school. I go work at the McMillan Bloedel logging company office. My job was to basically janitor, and I was emptying the waste baskets from all around the offices." She goes, "All of a sudden, this pickup truck come." sliding in the gravel in front of the main office. And this guy come running in, this screaming berserk, ran into where the head foreman's office was. And he's just going, holy shit, I had a Sasquatch. Come look what it did to the truck. Holy shit, holy shit. And so everyone, you know, her included, she's tailing behind these couple managers, she said, and some and a couple other people from in the building that just towards quitting time, they ran outside. And this pickup truck was just pulverized on the hood passenger side, passenger side, windshield was smashed. The driver's side was pummeled a little bit, but not as much as the past as the other side. And this guy is jumping up and down like a monkey and ranting and raving about what happened. And apparently he was coming back to the, what we call the beach when you're working in the bush and you're coming back to where the logs get put in the water. It's called the beach where the offices are or landings, whatever. But anyway, he's coming back to beach. He's coming off the mountain and he's coming up this hill and the sun's in his eyes. And so, you know, he's going on a westward tack end of the day. And of course it's a logging pickup truck. So the windshield's probably never been washed since it came come out of the factory and it's got sun glare. And as he's coming through this second growth area, he's, sees like a human in front of him and another one off to the left and all of a sudden kaboom he hits it and thing goes flying into the right ditch he slams on the brakes and jumps out thinking that he ran over some person and there's this big Sasquatch hair covered thing lying in the ditch holding itself moaning and groaning and flailing about And he's like holy shit and he said all of a sudden the bigger one come up from that jumped out of the way on the driver's side of the road and come bolting up and the thing was huge. I jumped in the truck and all of a sudden that one started pounding on the truck and the one that I hit jumped up and it started pounding on the truck and they are beating the hell out of the truck and then the windshield smashed and I just hit the gas and got the hell out of here and here I am. Holy shit, I think I might I don't think I killed it, but boy, that thing was big. And all of a sudden the foreman this woman who told me this story, she said the foreman just got on the radio and called in a backhoe, a big huge machine. It come down and it's, the, the guy running the backhoe was ordered to smash that truck and run it over and flatten it, and that's what they did, and after that was done, the foreman told him to grab that truck, drag it down the back 40, dig a hole, and bury that goddamn thing. This never happened, and that's the story about it, but, you know, why? Well, you got to remember what happened on Washington State, the Olympic Peninsula, even on British Columbia, when the environmentalists started squealing about the sp- the marbled murrelet and the spotted owl, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres and lands were set aside for no logging, no resource development, no resource extraction, you know, even no property or road building. So that's what happened with two birds. Can you imagine what is going to happen when all of a sudden someone comes out of the forest and they got Bigfoot Sasquatch in the back of a pickup truck and they put it on social media and the internet and say, okay, who's the highest bidder? Because the bids start at $3 million. And someone's going to buy it. You know, you look at ticket price for someone going to the Seattle Space Needle. $40 per heartbeat to go up on the Space Needle in Seattle. How many million people go up that Space Needle every summer? Say a million. That's $40 million. So you can imagine if someone gets a Sasquatch, you know what's the ticket price going to generate in revenue right there but someone gets that sasquatch and they don't we don't see them ever making it to believe it or not or Smithsonian institution or some fair to pay my 10 bucks to see a real creature other than dwyer of course he's always got a plastic fur something he wants to sell you a ticket for but anyway you look at these forest companies Pipeline companies, oil companies, the list goes on. We know that in every corner of Turtle Island, Central America and South America, even in Australia, Indonesia, Asia, even Eastern Europe, we know that we have these hair-covered critters that we're sharing our lands with, our homes, our backcountry with. And once they have conclusive proof, you're going to see all the ologists with their PhDs running around, trying to do Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey's work a hundred times over per hectare. So there ain't going to be no logging. There sure as hell ain't going to be no oil exploration or natural gas or fracking. So, and I think that's one of the reasons why we don't have conclusive proof yet. I'm sure the government's got it, but they sure as hell ain't going to share it with us, the commoners. It's up to us commoners to get out there and get one.
2: Yeah. Do you think that we could do a Jane Goodall approach with these things?
0: I've been trying. They like garlic. <laughs> 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 yeah, my wife, she wants too. Peggy, she's sitting beside me. She's always gung ho and buying new camo and infrared attachments for her cell phone. She's all gangbusters to go out and do the Diane Foster, Jean good Goodall thing, but that she gets scared. You know, and that's the main thing. You know, it's one thing to say, it's another thing to go out and actually do it. Because I kid you not, it. Turns into a shit sandwich real fast out there when you got the big fellas around you and it's dark.
2: Yeah, and that's a that's a point I was trying to make. It seems like they're curious and they want to come in and check things out. Uh, and I've even had a lot of violent encounters on the show with fishermen and and hunters and everything else. But even the non-violent encounters, they seem like they're curious. But the moment you start knowing or you realize <coughs> that they're there, it seems like they want to split really quick or the moment you start going towards them, they want to split real quick.
0: I was working on a thesis on the possibility of the introduction of smallpox into British Columbia's coastal region predating recorded European contact. So it came about by this place called Mound Island that we have that's full of mounds that were old big house depressions for a fish trap. All these kayakers go there to camp and of course they cause erosion. They know that the native watchmen up here, when I used to be the native watchman for my tribe, and they know from the Archaeological Act of Canada that if you find an arrowhead, a spearhead, a mortar and pestle, a hammer stone, a whirlstone stone they used to use for making whirling wool and things like that, if you find a high grade stone or bone artifact, you bring it to a proper repository like a museum or you bring it to the local Native Watchmen, so they can bring it to a repository, a museum. And so anyway, this Mound Island has all these high-grade artifacts coming out, and I'm sitting there thinking about, about it. You know, every time I get one donated to the program to be held onto, I'm thinking, you know, you don't live in a house with a beautiful roll-on, snap-on tool chest worth $18,000 in your garage, and you don't go move to another area and leave your toolbox in the garage you know you take it with you so but if the same turn if my neighbor has an eighteen thousand dollar snap-on toolbox and uh i'm unemployed and i got no money and i want a toolbox just like him with snap-on on on it well it'd be nice just to go next door if the laws weren't in place and say hey let me see that big pipe wrench you got it says snap-on or craftsman yeah okay here it is and i grab that old big old wrench and i clunk them upside the head a few times. Well, it's got wheels. I just roll it next door to my house. Now I got the new cabinet. So that's indicative of what it was like on coastal British Columbia as the native peoples. If you wanted that mortar and pestle, that hammer stone, that beautiful obsidian harpoon head, spear harpoon, the list goes on of stone tools. Well, you want it. You don't. You go in and you raid the village and you kill the people and you take their property that now becomes yours, canoes included, women and children as slaves included. And you take all of their high grade stone tools. So Mound Island, they didn't do this. So I was wondering why. And plus I'm also looking for evidence of Sasquatches. So I'm always poking around and I'm always finding cockle shell deposits in heavy accumulations outside of the midden complex, which is the black soils where the people live. So anyway, I'm always at Mound Island checking things out. And uh, then it dawned on me that, hey, because of the timber was logged in 1897, they logged the entire island except for where the big trees are now, which is the midden old village complex. So, those trees back in 1897, when I core sampled them, showed that they were little pecker poles, twigs. So, in 1897, the loggers didn't want them. So, they left and now they're big. But when I also did the core sampling for age, aging these trees, I started counting the rings. And then I added the 35 years, 38 years for alder and blackberries and other stuff to grow, die, then the evergreens take off, which I had poured. It gave me a date of 1740, 176, 1746 plus or minus a few years, which correlates to an interior smallpox epidemic. So that place the people probably died of smallpox. And when I did some truthing there, I confirmed it. They died of smallpox. Our local people wouldn't go there because it was full of contamination from the other major villages around there. And then all of a sudden they wouldn't go there a few years later because of loliloch, ghosts, spirits. And then all of a sudden the Europeans show up in 1776, 1778, and more diseases come, smallpox, influenza, and tuberculosis. So through the 1800s, you don't have enough people live out in our serfdoms no more. So they come and live in our major village centers. And then all of a sudden they move to major village centers which are on the sailboat routes, Alert Bay, Campbell River, Port Hardy, so forth. So that's what I confirmed with Mound Island. So then when I was doing this and I was thinking about it and I'm looking at the cockle shell accumulation outside of the midden complex at Mound Island, which means outside of where the humans used to live, the black soil ash from my ancestors fires in that black soil you'll find shell and bone remains where they lived. so i'm saying okay i'm finding broken cockle shells and heavy accumulation the beach has a lot of cockle shells that's why the people lived here shellfish and the fish trap but now i'm getting cockle shells and heavy accumulation on surface it's got to be the sasquatches why aren't they coming right into the village and then I went to other sites and I started doing the same thing where we know we have high accumulations of cockles, which is, you know, no one knows the type of shellfish out here that looks like a scallop shell with its hinges going from the back to the front. And inside, when you open it up, it looks like a big, huge shrimp or prawn tail. And it tastes equivalent to a shrimp, combination of a shrimp and an abalone. It's a delicacy. Favorite food of the Bakus, the wild man of the woods, the smaller one. So anyway... I'm finding in other areas high accumulations of broken cockle shells outside of where the humans used to live, the old archaeological deposits. And then that's when I started thinking, and I threw something out on one of the Facebook groups on Bigfoot Sasquatch there last year, last winter. And it was, I feel that Sasquatches, when we look at the reports of Roosevelt, Lewis, and Clark, and others from the early time of recorded history, whether it be in journals or of explorers and surveyors (coughs) to newspapers from when the first printing presses came west across the Americas, Canada. We have a lot of recorded reports of bush mountain devils, bush apes, you know, these big hair covered giants, the lost tribe. And then there wasn't that very many people in North America, yet we're seeing a lot of reports about the crossing of paths between the non-natives and the Sasquatches. And then all of a sudden, we don't really hear anything about it through the 1800s. It sort of drops. So when you look at the sighting reports, you'll see a drop in the late 1800s into the into the mid 1990s and then we see the bell curve going up again and then i started thinking why would this be we got more people yeah there you go there's a good indicator of why that's going up and citing encounters especially after 1967 bluff creek and then i'm looking at all of the reports and we've been talking about it tonight you've been talking about it since you started this program of yours and we sasquatch enthusiasts and researchers we've been talking about it since patty was put in film and even beyond and what i'm starting to see is everything about the characteristics based from a bushman's principle of reading wolves bears any animal i read out there even dogs in the city it's all based on instinct it's based on what you were taught as well as a human more so, very little instinct, mostly what you're taught and what you learn by experience. So everything I'm seeing with the Sasquatch is the grimacing. Native people, the bakwish mask always has grimacing teeth, um, hiding its face, running away. Nocturnal, why were they nocturnal? Well, when you look at the Kwakwaka'wakw First Nations laws, prior to European contact, if you went into someone else's shellfish beach, berry patch, clover patch, hunting ground, fishing area of a river, or saltwater, you could be killed and nothing would happen to the individual or his family because you're protecting your food source. So now you think about Sasquatch, doesn't have a well-defined frontal lobe, sloping forehead, pointed cranial top, you know, not the brightest creature out there because he ain't using fire, maybe he is more intelligent why, why he doesn't use fire and weapons, but anyway, all of a sudden it's got to compete with humans and the humans have mass. They have spears. They have the spears that have the throwing stick. They have slingshots, which native people use quite a bit throughout turtle Island and they got knives and they got fire. So the Sasquatch has a good reason to go nocturnal. So it's not competing with the humans in daylight. And then if it is as Dr. Meldrum and others speculate, that it's a relic humanid, it means it has a pretty good relationship to the DNA structure of a human, us. So does it not mean that it's susceptible as the Indians were when the first explorers came to North America and South America? Would it not have been wiped out as well by smallpox, influenza, tuberculosis, maybe even venereal disease, because we know the reports of some possible rapes and so forth and interactions and native people um, copulating with them so what I'm getting at is with Roosevelt and all the early newspaper reports and everything we have this high incident of coming across one another Sasquatch and human and all of a sudden during the time of the smallpox influenza tuberculosis epidemics there's a drop in reports and then when the diseases disappear with Left Creek 60s we start to see a Big increase in sightings. Big increase because we've got cameras on our phones now and cameras for quite a few decades. Plus, we have more logging roads and access to the backcountry and sports and activities. But we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing a lot of curiosity from the Sasquatches, but no Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey interaction between the Sasquatch initiating contact with humans. And I believe it's because they were susceptible to smallpox, influenza, and tuberculosis.
2: You definitely could be right. You know, it's it's interesting. It's definitely an interesting take. You know, we start looking at the historical reports, like what you're talking about. You know, why is it that it dies off at a certain time? And why is it that it's starting to pick up? It's definitely a good point. Can we talk a little bit about Operation Sea Monkey? And, you know, as as you and, and Todd and, and you guys went out there, I got a clearer understanding of, of why you guys went to this area at a certain time of year. Can you yeah. talk about the historical the historical significance of why you guys went to that area and some of the sighting reports of that area? I know when I was talking to Todd, he was talking about them <laughs> swimming, swimming from one island to another. And people might balk at that, but we have reports of them swimming across the Columbia River here in Washington State, going between Washington and, and Oregon. Um, but can you talk about the historical reports of that particular islands that you guys went to?
0: If you read the book "Guests Never Leave Hungary," my grandfather's autobiography, or another one called "Totem Poles and Tea," written by Eugenia Harold, about Native Anchorage, my trailer was put on the old homestead, and you get a map. You will find there's Village Island, Mimchamlis. right across the channel is Nukhumi. New Vancouver. East down channel is Calahuis, Crooked Beach. These are three major winter villages for the hundreds, thousands of years. And then between these three major villages, you have where Chief Kamehamehameha's cousin used to live, It's called the Kamano properties. And across the little bay there is the stone walls where the galley farm was. Hundreds of yards of rock walls, no buildings left, and what used to be a big farm. And then you have the Lansdowne Farm, and then you have these other farms and old logging camps. But when you go there and do as I've done and gunk-holed around and poked around hunting and looking for old bottles and things like that, you notice a lot of wild fruit trees. Apples, three, four different types. Cherries three different types, crab apples, plums, two different types, cherry, um, it said cherries, pears, um, different types of berries that have all gone wild. And if you dig around in some of these orchards, like we did when we were cleaning up where the trailer was, lo and behold, a bloody carrot pops up, you know, Owen's homestead hasn't operated there for decades. And yet the odd carrot or potato still pops up. So in this small High accumulation of sweet protein, veg- vegetable matter, berries. In the summertime, you don't hear of all the kayakers out there in the You hear very few reports of Sasquatches. It's because the beaches are green, the shellfish. May, June, July, August. No R in the month. A lot of sun, a lot of daylight hours, a lot of zooplankton, photoplankton. Even get some called uh, goniolics, which has got the PSP, the paralytic shellfish poison, in that one-celled critter, Red Tide. So May through August, all the shellfish beds, the clams are really, really green. You open them up, and they're just all oh, that plankton stuff inside them, green. They don't cure when you smoke them. To make sea smoke clams. You jar them and turn your water green. That looks terrible. You grind them up for making clam pancakes called a fritter. It goes green. You eat them in clam chowder. Your clam chowder is green. That tastes like the green. You don't eat clams May, June, July, August because of the plankton accumulation inside their bodies, but also the high chance of paralytic shellfish poisoning, red tide. And the Sasquatch being close to the human possibly is susceptible to PSB poisoning and red tide, which is red tide poisoning as well. So they know that. Plus, there's too many damn tourists gunk around in kayaks that don't make noise and stinking up the place. So they need to go where there's a high accumulation of protein because they're an omnivore of 500 pounds plus. So they go up into the high alpine. They follow the snow as it melts, exposing the animals that died during the winter, the carrion. Just go up on a hill that's receding snow line and look for the birds of prey, your birds whiskey jacks, your blue jays, which are stellar jays, your eagle, your hawk, your crow, your raven, look for those. And whenever you see those things landing, you're going to find some carrion. So I believe they go up and go after that high concentration of protein. At the same time, as the snow receding has taken place in May, that's when quatum, salmon berries, come out. So they can get into timber and on the slopes, and they got the first proteins, which is your salmon berry shoot, in the beginning of May. And then into June, you got the salmon berry. And then you have all of the other greens and berries and tubers coming online. And, you know, look at a high alpine. There's nothing but starch and vitamins up there. And protein, meat, mountain goats in the Olympic Peninsula introduced by man. That's why there's so many Sasquatches down there. They're eating mountain goats in the high alpine during that late spring, early summer period. And then when the salmon begin to show in September in the Pacific Northwest Southern streams. Now, a lot of people don't understand this, especially your viewers, they think that, oh, it's June, there's salmon in all the rivers everywhere. No, that's just in Alaska and it works its way south later into the season. Right now it's almost December and we still have chum salmon swimming in salt water going into rivers. So anyway, up in Alaska, Northern British Columbia, it ain't taking place, it's too late. So when the salmon return in the Pacific Northwest in late August, September, the omnivore Sasquatch is gonna come down and eat them. And then all of a sudden, some of them might, I think a lot of them stay up in the Alpine, hunting the deer, fawns that are pretty small and other things and greenery and fruit berries. But then all of a sudden, the end of September comes, all the tourists leave Village Island area, all the mothership yacht boats, all the yachters, they're all gone. Except for Tom and his dumb Indians that are still out there working. And then all of a sudden we hear the hollering, the whoop, whoop, whoop from island to island. Then all of a sudden we hear the noises behind wherever we're staying, we have the interactions of them, all of a sudden the garlic's going missing. The Sasquatch are coming in, they're yelling from island to island, hey, hey, it's me, I'm on this island. And then someone answers, oh, hey, it's me, I'm over here. Swim across, they meet each other, pat each other on the back, high five. Yo, how was your summer? Oh, I was up on Vancouver Islands, Alpine. That ah, was pretty good, pretty thin on marmots. So where were you? Oh, I went up the mainland inlet, up Knights Inlet. Went up there on the north side. It was a good, productive summer. But now I'm back down here because all them dumb humans are gone. Now we can go into those abandoned villages and homesteads and go eat those apples and crab apples and berries and when the tide goes low, we'll go on the beach and eat our favorite food, chali, the cockle because it's high concentration of shellfish in the Broughton Archipelago and then of course when we eat all the chawley we'll eat some mussels eat some butter clams native little neck clams, horse clams uh, roll rocks over, eat the eels underneath, the baby crabs and then of course, oh, it's getting on into October, it's Indian summer, time to go up the inlet a bit here on the edge of the Broughton Archipelago to Guilford Island and to Hada which is Bond Sound and Kak Weekend which is Thompson Meetup which is Viner even Absogu to that creek and others because the salmon are there, high high concentrations of protein and that's why we went to the Broughton Archipelago with Operation Sea Monkey because we were going into my backyard. And the years I've been out there, I've actually been keeping track of all of the sighting reports for almost 20, 30 years. And I'm starting to see a pattern, well-established on migration, but I'm also starting to see a possible pattern of family grouping based upon the tribal grouping of the Kwakwaka'wakw nation, meaning it's watershed-based clam beach based but that's for other programs we'll get into that
2: yeah and we'll definitely go in more into operation sea monkey but it kind of clicked when i talked to you and and todd you know it was uh tons of food the odds of seeing something were extremely high at that time of year or this uh, you know around this time of year and it was a uh a recon mission but we'll definitely get in more into Operation Sea Monkey. I, I wanted to ask you, I know you do a ton of uh, First Nation artwork. How can people buy your artwork? Because that's real. and I'll post a lot of your pictures to the website of some of your artwork. Where, how can people purchase your, the, the stuff that you make?
0: What, white Man's Magic, Internet. <laughs> well,
2: Powerful I know that, but where would they,
0: where, um, where, best
2: place, where would they go to buy it?
0: Yeah, Thomas Seawood on Facebook, S-E-W-I-D, Thomas Sewood. And uh, Peggy is actually going to put a page up on her website for her adventure, tourism, sea kayaking operation down here out of uh, Pacific Northwest called Hamumu Adventures. H-A-M-O-O-M-O-O Adventures. Hamumu Adventures, and it means butterfly. Oh, I'll cool. put it on my Facebook tonight too. But uh, Hamumu Adventures would be the best one. It'll be all their contacts and then uh, my Facebook as well. And then you can get my emails and everything from there. It's better to go through email because I have two cell phones, one for Washington State when I'm down in the States, and then my Canadian one. So it gets kind of confused and one's always off. So it's best to go through my email and I'll send it to you, tom.seawid at com. It's pretty easy. And then I can, you know, I do carvings. Right now I got a two foot long salmon yellow cedar traditional feast dish with abalone inlay that I'm just finishing up now. And then I got other paintings and different things. I've done all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And then, of course, with Peggy, she's doing, the, um, got me as the guide for Seattle's Sasquatch tour, where we do show you the. Bakush dance, the wild man of the woods with mask and costume in front of a Chunahua pole, the welcoming pole of a female Sasquatch in Pioneer Square in Seattle. And then from there, we go up to the Seattle Art Museum for all the West Coast native Kwakwaka'wakw, Sasquatch art and others, and up to the Burke Museum for the amazing Chunahua male and female collection that they have there in the Burke Museum, as well as a beautiful Chunahua welcoming pole in the front of the museum and and that's the seattle sasquatch tour and then of course you're going to be just like this radio program by the time i'm done with a hoarse voice two hours later you're going to be well edumacated mm-hmm. on the Indian culture of the sasquatch mm-hmm.
2: yeah no and, and we'll have to have you back tom uh, and i'd love to have peggy on too as well and on the future show and have you guys back because i know there's a lot of other things we could get into like the little people and dog man and there's just a million things we can get into uh on this and (laughs) i love hearing the stories like i said i could sit here all night and listen to uh listen to you tell stories but uh
0: definitely i just spent a year up in the northwest territories my mother is a flow-blooded cree indian from central canada saskatchewan and I've lived in what they call Haida Gwaii, which is the Queen Charlotte Islands, with the Haida people for over a year. And I've been a commercial fisherman, traveling the entire British Columbia coast, uh, parts of Southeast Alaska. Been a hunting guide all through the coast. But the bottom line is, I'm um, been so interested and intrigued by the big fellas that no matter where I've gone, you know, I have no qualms about looking some waitress in the eyes in some rural town and going, Hey, anyone know about the Sasquatch around here? I can help. Tell me about it. Because it's there. And uh, of all the people I've talked to, I like John Bindernagel, Dr. John Bindernagel, I, when I met him over 20 years ago with my first encounter, it was amazing. Because here was someone I could talk about what I'd read about and what I'd had been reading about, Gigantopithecus blackie and this and that, all the scientific part. He could teach me and he could, and he had an understanding and I can talk in depth with them on different things. And then now being a native, I'm trying to find someone I can talk to, like a John Bindernagel on the First Nations perspective, and I haven't found one yet. I've seen a lot of uh, gimmicks so far, like some of these Sasquatch shows and some of these Indians running around in camel and 400 pounds each. I just shake my head and go, God, that wrong message about the Indian is getting out in regards to the Sasquatch. and Hopefully, a lot of people will come to me and I'll be more than happy to share as I'm doing now that, you know, you want to get a Bushman's true Aboriginal Indian First Nation, North American Indian perspective. Please, hopefully you can reach out to me. And yeah, I'll write a book one day.
2: Well, it was an honor having you on the show. Will you come back?
0: Oh, definitely. I'll come back. I'll bring Peggy, too, so she can tell you a few things.
2: Yeah, please do. And wish your son happy birthday for me next week.
0: Will yeah. do. Tell me gain in the language of my people. Halakulasla, Lesla. Go in peace. Thank you very much.
2: Tom, it was an honor. If you get a chance, check out hamumuadventures.com. You can hook up with Tom on Facebook under Thomas Seawood, S-E-W-I-D on Facebook. Uh, Thank you again, Tom. And thank you guys for listening tonight. I appreciate you guys being here and listening to the show. Tomorrow night, I'm going to be talking with Tom about the little people. uh, And I'm really excited about that. Uh, We'll talk about the uh, buck Hopefully I said that. (laughs) Hopefully I said that right. But uh, we're going to go into more topics tomorrow night. Thank you again, guys, for listening. Remember, if you've had an encounter, shoot me an email. My email address is Wes at SasquatchChronicles.com. Until tomorrow night, everyone, have a great night.